Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Solomon Islands is very fragile. There's a lot of division within Solomon Islands itself. And we could potentially open a Pandora's box that, that we, from the outside, may not be able to help resolve. The Falkland diplomacy that we've, uh, we've witnessed over the past, past few weeks hasn't been successful. But Pacific statecraft could be successful. Going forward, the importance of consistent, coordinated engagement in the region, which recognizes that relationships are the currency, but they take time, is so fundamental. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, Senior Lecturer at the Center for Defense and Security Studies at Massey University, Dr. Anna Poles and Pacific Fellow at the ANU Australia Pacific Security College, Dr. Henry Avarature, join Professor Rory Medcalf to discuss the controversial Solomon Islands-China security deal and the major challenges it presents for Australia and neighbours in the Pacific. This conversation was recorded on Thursday the 28th of April. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to this special episode of the National Security Podcast, where we look at uh, a major challenge facing uh, not only Australia, but our neighbours in the Pacific. And I'm referring, of course, to the uh, the great controversy uh, that's arisen about uh, the Solomon Islands-China security deal, the uh, claims that this could lead to a Chinese military presence or base in the Pacific and the questions that this raises about sovereignty, about national interest, not only for Solomon Islands itself, but for Australia and other neighbours. And of course, the the major ripples this has caused in the Australian federal election, uh, among other issues. We are joined today by two voices uh, who I think bring a regional perspective, a, a genuinely Pacific perspective to these issues, and that's, I think, quite critical to our understanding and our policy options going forward. It's a real pleasure to welcome to the studio uh, Anna Poles and Henry Ibarature. Uh Thanks again for your time uh, and your expertise uh, joining us on the National Security Podcast. I might go to you first, um, Anna, to, to set the scene a little, and it would be great to get your take literally on what's happened. Uh, we, we, we know the media reporting. We know all of the, um, the storm, the social media reporting uh, about this China Solomon security deal, uh, but this hasn't come out of nowhere. This is part of a, uh, a longer story, I guess. What's your perspective on what's happened? Uh, why does this matter? 
Rory, and and thank you very much for having me here. Uh, so, yes, this security agreement signed now uh, between China and Solomon Islands is part of a, a longer story that has been unfolding over the over really the past sort of four or five months. Uh, following the riots in November in Honiara in the capital last year. Uh, and also from the, the point in which Solomon Islands switched recognition from Taiwan to China several years ago, uh, there was a, a fairly um, quick move to develop a number of economic agreements uh, between China and Solomon's. And then uh, from last year, a series of security agreements, policing agreements. Following the November riots in last year, there was a uh, offer to for China to provide uh, trainers, police trainers to the RSIPF, to Solomon Islands Police. Uh, and and then of course the security agreement uh, is leaked in mid March and reflects the depth to which China is seeking to to develop its security relationship with Solomon Islands, but also the depth to which China is seeking to secure its own interests in Solomon Islands as well. And this is um, of course in the last few weeks uh, created intense concern and scrutiny uh, in Australia and elsewhere. Um, I think one of the questions on many minds uh, is who wants what in, <clears throat> in in this initiative? I mean, partly there's the question of whether it was, uh, if you like, uh, an initiative with with China in the driver's seat or, or whether indeed uh, the government of Solomon Islands has has been, been seeking something like this. But also the question as to who wants what out of this deal. And we can come a bit later in the conversation to the uh, the debate about whether at the end of this road there's a Chinese military base or not uh, in Solomon Islands. Uh, but what do you think, uh, Anna, what do you think that uh, in particular Prime Minister Sogavare actually wants out of this deal? Well, that's a particularly complex uh, question. Uh, uh, certainly, Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare has been very clear that he and Solomon Islands are within their right to sign an agreement like this in the country's national interest, uh, that there is their sovereign right to do so, and that's absolutely correct. In terms of what he's seeking to achieve with it, arguably, I think there are a number of layers to that. One is the fact that the security agreement is part of a package, an economic package uh, as well, and we'll understand more about that in the next few months. Secondly, it's also about his own political survival in uh, as prime minister uh, and growing concern about the level of dissent uh, uh, towards him personally and towards his government and concern, long-standing concerns, which really date back to the, the tensions uh, and then the subsequent riots as well uh, over corruption, elite capture, uh, uneven development in, in Solomon Islands. And so he's seeking to to address a number of those issues. He's also uh, engaging in a, uh, a level of uh, leveraging of strategic anxieties in the region as well. And he has done so very effectively. We only have to look at the the, the speed with which Australia and the United States uh, sent high-level delegations to, to Solomons. Uh, so he's really seeking to uh, to both ensure his 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 political uh, survival and potential uh, legacy, despite the fact that he's all, he would also be acutely aware uh, about the the depth of unpopularity, the degree to which this this agreement is unpopular in his country. 
Um, I'd love to come back to a few of those issues later in the conversation, one of those also being the question of whether this is actually a counterproductive agreement for a lot of those objectives, you know, the, the potential that it has to actually worsen dissent, for example, in the Solomon Islands. And also, I guess, you know, the question which we we need to touch on somewhere as to, you know, whether in fact there, there's corruption involved, which has been alleged in in, in some of the, the media coverage. But Henry, I might turn to you, uh, if I can, and, and you've got a uh, not only a perspective from uh, from PNG from the uh, the Papua New Guinea experience of um, challenges to sovereignty, if I can put it that way, over the years, uh, but also I think uh, partly by dint of your um, your role here uh, at the um, Australia Pacific Security College, uh, you look at a much broader regional perspective across the Pacific. So I guess my opening questions to you, Henry, would be. Um, what do you think the meaning of this uh, controversy is in terms of questions about sovereignty uh, and the historical experience of the region? Well, I'll, I'll uh, reflect on um, the experience Papua New Guinea went through when the government in 1997 under Prime Minister Julius Chen engaged uh, Sunline International to deal with the Bougainville uh, problem and these are the, these are the mercenaries that were uh, quite notorious at the time, as I recall. That's right. Uh, and Chen tried to uh, define what mercenary meant, but um, the word mercenary itself was sufficient enough to be weaponized in, to say to um, draw the attention of the region. Uh, but the experience that Papua New Guinea went through was a bit like what. Sogovari is going through at this point in time where he was starting to assert their sovereignty that we make these decisions because it serves our national interest, uh, which was is fine, but you are operating in the environment and the environment is the Pacific and the Pacific uh, does not want to uh, put itself in a situation where tensions arise. The philosophy of the region is a region of peace and security. And when you're framing uh, relations with a state or other state, then you have to always consider the implications for your 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 your, your security or and the security of the region in, in general. Um, and so it 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 Australia New Zealand and others came down very heavily on Papua New Guinea. The same is happening at this point in time. My concern here is that, as in PNG, then the the politics, command and control in the army collapsed. My fear is that the more we apply pressure, we can create a situation where Sogoari becomes very stubborn. And as he becomes stubborn, we also know that Solomon Islands is very fragile. There's a lot of division within uh, Solomon Islands itself. And we could potentially open a Pandora's box. What of instability? Yes. That, that we, from the outside, may not be able to uh, help resolve. And that will be dealt with by Solomon Islands themselves. So my concern here is that we should also be very careful about the amount of pressure we are accepting on Solomon Islands because we do not know what's going to happen next. If there is going to be internal instability, then 
we could be held uh, not liable, but we could be held responsible for creating that situation. So that's the concern I have at this this point in time for the for the situation as it is. Look, I think that's a really useful perspective, and I, I think uh, Henry, it's pretty. In, in, intriguing the the analogy that you've drawn with the Sandline crisis, uh, I think it was 1997, right? That's uh, right. 97 in, 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 in PNG, which um, I guess at one level, you know, was such a um, such a crisis for PNG and for the region, but ultimately, I guess I'd like to imagine, led to some positive outcomes. Led to the uh, the Bougainville. Or contributed to the Bougainville peace process. That you know the the role of New Zealand and Australia in um, in that peace process. Uh, and of course, in the end, Sandline forces didn't uh, undertake uh, the you know the very violent action in Bougainville that um, you know that they had been contracted for. So I guess um, simplifying this, you could make an argument that the the Sandline crisis in PNG ultimately resolved in a positive way. It may not be so simple this time as part of what I'm reading yes. <laughs> from your assessment. Um, can I just draw you out a little bit more about the the kinds of maybe not pressure but activity that a country like Australia should be undertaking to not only um, resolve the situation in our interests, uh, because I think you know, putting it very frankly, from an Australian perspective, there's there's no desire to see um, a Chinese security presence in Solomon Islands, but also to do so in a way that is stabilising for Solomon's. Are there kinds of activity, assistance, involvement, maybe pressure that won't be counterproductive? Do you do you see options there? I think the effort by Australia to send its Pacific minister to consult with the Solomon Island is a very good step. But I also think that that should have come at a very high level. They would expect a prime minister to intervene, to have that prime minister to prime minister conversation with Solomon You don't send your lieutenants to go and talk with the captain in this case, so he may feel that he may have been insulted, offended, um, that, you know, you send somebody junior to come and have a conversation on a matter that is very substantial. So I think it may have been a good effort, but it needs to be elevated and it needs to be sustained. Uh, you, need to be, you need to keep on talking to your Pacific colleagues continuously. You can't apply pressure now, and when things improve, you take the pressure off. You have to always sustain your communications and your engagement with your Pacific uh, counterparts. You call them family. Well, keep the family connections alive and active because there's so much room for other bodies, other actors to step in and fill the vacuum. That's why I'm saying that from this point onwards, Australia and its uh, and the Pacific family, including other Pacific Island states, must continue to engage with each other. That's it's, it's very critical. You engage and you also learn to listen. Listen well 
uh, don't need to say anything, but you listen and reflect and then go back, engage. That's that's what's really and I think the process has started and I think it should be it should continue. Yeah. We'll be right back. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Anna, if I can turn back to you, um, I guess it would be good to draw you out a little bit more on the the meaning and the impact of this situation, this this crisis, if I can call it that, uh, for, for the region, not only for Solomon Islands, but, but for the region. Uh, among other things, I'd be very interested to know how New Zealand is mm-hmm. is seeing this. Uh, thanks, Rory. Uh in terms of the 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 impacts of impact of this, I think we we've it's brought into sharp relief uh, what is wanting, and this really emphasises Henry's point here that relationships are wanting in the region, and that it, there's been a lot of questions about what could have been done, what should have been done early on, uh, whilst. You know, once the draft agreement was leaked uh, in mu- in mid March, you know what could Australia, New Zealand, and 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 Pacific leaders have done at that point? And it really does reflect the fact that obviously those relationships weren't there; uh, they weren't there necessarily at at the local level, uh, at the national level, and 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 I agree that there was a clear need to uh, to send. Uh, if you were going to send anyone uh, from Australia, uh, then you send someone at the highest level uh, because hierarchy is important and and we can certainly imagine the reaction if the shoe had been on, on the other foot, for instance. And this has been a long-standing grievance in the Pacific that that Australia and New Zealand will often send someone in a much lower position uh, to speak with someone who is either... Uh, has much higher official status or, or or higher traditional status, so there is so this is a learning curve uh, for for the region. The other thing that I think is really critical uh, is that there was a need to respond to this issue from a position of collective security, and that's certainly what both New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta said when they first came out with some fairly robust comments actually about their concerns that this could disrupt and undermine uh, regional security and disrupt and undermine the existing regional security architecture, which has effectively responded to crisis management uh, situations in the Pacific for for many years. Uh, And 
there was an emphasis from New Zealand that this need that the response needed to be grounded in a collective security approach. It needed to be grounded in a Pacific-led approach, uh, whether that be by the Pacific Islands Forum or by Pacific leaders. Uh, and and I think that this was a missed opportunity for both Australia uh, and New Zealand and the Pacific to work together rather than coming in individually. And obviously, uh, you know, I appreciate that a lot of the messaging that Australia has put out there has been messaging to Washington and to Beijing and not necessarily to Honiara, uh, for instance. The red line comment uh, is one example of that. Um, but this was an opportunity to really live those values of, of family, of vale, as Morrison talks about, uh, and of collective security. And I would suggest that that could have been a far more effective way of not necessarily uh, stopping the agreement from being signed, but potentially leveraging, strengthening the Solomon Islands position in it, seeking to find gaps. Sogavara has talked about the way, the fact that this agreement fills a number of gaps in internal security finding those gaps and and seeking to fill them from a regional approach. Uh, and and this is where perhaps we see some divergence between Australia and and New Zealand in the way that the two countries responded to this. Shared concerns, absolutely, uh, but different approaches. So your um, observations, I think, draw out a, cu- a couple of further questions from me. One is the... Um, the question about about the New Zealand role, uh, you know, whether whether in fact there's an opportunity for New Zealand to play a more active uh, and direct role, partly because Australia's in the middle of an election campaign. So mm-hmm. while I think the, um, you know, it's it's fair to make the observation that a leader to leader engagement should take place. Um, there's uh, between Australia and New Zealand, one of the prime ministers is fighting an election campaign, the other isn't. So in a sense, there's a there's an argument to make mm-hmm. that New Zealand mm-hmm. could be could be stepping up there um, Mm. with with the visits. But the other question is, um, it's not too late, is it? I mean, your observations about repositioning the response as part of a Pacific family approach um, could could still hold true now that we have an agreement that has been signed but not implemented. Um, There's a lot that remains in the interpretation and the implementation Mm. of this Mm. agreement. Uh, Presumably, uh, this is far from over. So I guess my two questions are, one, is there something special New Zealand can do? And secondly, um, if it's not too late, what collectively can be done now? Absolutely. Uh, New Zealand... You know, whether it be in the case of Bougainville back in the 1990s uh, uh, and in, in other occasions, has demonstrated the ability to exercise its so soft power, in quotes, uh, through um, its ability to, to engage in ways that Australia sometimes is constrained from doing. Uh, and this is, an, uh, this is a, a great example of where New Zealand could uh, if I may use the, the term step up here mm. and and actually uh, seek to work with uh, with Solomon Islands government uh, along with Pacific leaders as well, uh, because there is concern across the Pacific about this issue. The fact that uh, Tonga and New Zealand have both suggested that it be tabled at the upcoming Pacific Islands Forum leaders meeting in June is evidence of of regional concern. Um, and so New Zealand could certainly seek to 
open a open a, a conversation. Obviously, Australia needs to be part of that, uh, but certainly open a conversation with the Prime Minister, with other key individuals within the government, uh, Colin Beck, for instance, the Foreign Minister as well, uh, those who are close to the Prime Minister, and to look at the ways in which New Zealand, Australia, the Pacific for- Islands Forum uh, can support the Solomon Islands to clarify elements of the security agreement, which quite frankly are incredibly vague, Mm. incredibly concerning, and could have dire domestic consequences. And that's an important point that this is not only about the strategic question of Chinese military presence in the Pacific. It's Mm. it's very much about Mm. uh, what this means for Mm. life in in the Solomon Islands Mm. on the ground. Absolutely. So can I maybe just uh, ask both of you uh, a little more about the you know the longer term responses of the region uh i think both the australian government and and, and the labor opposition now during the election campaign are talking about a much bigger package of activity the the government's pointing to its uh, so-called pacific step up over the past few years and how um you know there has been uh, really i think Enhanced engagement at many levels. There, you know, mm. there is substantial development assistance and so forth. And yes, one can argue that it's that that is partly a correction to a failure of some years earlier. Mm. But nonetheless, there there was a lot of activity already in train. Um, the Labor opposition, as part of its election um, campaign, now has unveiled um, some 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 uh, pretty uh, substantial ideas. Uh, Including, for example, on on, on labour mobility, all, all sorts of ideas that that could strengthen Pacific family bonds. Um, be interesting to hear. Maybe beginning with you, Henry. Any thoughts on how much of this longer term activity is helpful, uh, and what's and what's missing? The longer term activities are fine. Uh, that'll you know, uh, improve the engagement that is really needed in the region between Australia and its partners. But I go back to the word around family. If we are going to apply the word family over valley in the region, then it means you have to engage meaningfully in a way where uh, you don't drown out the voice of the Pacific but you allow the articulation of the voice of the Pacific to arise. And you allow yourself the space to listen properly. And by listening, I mean really deep listening. But that listening is not only from Australia or others, but the listening too must also come from the islanders themselves, island leaders themselves of the situation that we are currently in because the geopolitical uh, environment has changed. The context has changed significantly. And that conversation must happen uh, between Australia and, as um, uh, was rightly pointed out, by Pacific Islanders talking to each other. So it's not just one-way traffic from Australia going in, but it's all Pacific leaders collectively acting together to make sure that their region, the region they aspire to be, a region of peace, you know, safety and security, all that is not threatened, yeah? So that should be at the core of 
the missions that will go ahead into the future that governments from Australia are proposing. So it shouldn't be really one-way traffic. It should also be coming from the islands as well, interacting with Australia and New Zealand and others in the region. To put it entirely on Australia and New Zealand to take the lead, I think is a bit unfair. Mm. And I think that the Pacific leaders should also play a role in making sure that our region is safe and secure. Yeah, that's that's the cautionary note that I would put to other activities that might take that take place in the future. Good activities, but it's activities that must be reciprocal by all parties because this is a region that affects all of us. And how, how responsive do you think the um, both the leadership and the the broader political community in Solomon in the Solomon Islands would be to that? Um, that, that broader activity by Pacific neighbours, I think there would be a, a bit. There would be response. Uh, their response would be um, respectful, because other countries' leaders in the region have a concern about the the house that they live in. That some things are not right, and they are coming together as a collective body to raise their concerns, their issues with matters in somebody else's house, that somebody else's house matters also affects their house. So this is this whole folly that we are living in in this region, and that folly must lead to uh, appreciate each other, uh, respect each other, work with each other so that the folly remains stable. When I refer to the folly, it's the Pacific folly that all islanders, um, including Australia and New Zealand, must collectively work together to make sure that the foundations of that father is strong. Right now, as it seems, the father is on shaky grounds. We need to stabilize it. So is, is, um, has this been something of a, a wake-up call, do you think, to other, uh, other countries in the, in the Pacific? It certainly is a wake-up call, given the geopolitical uh, context of the security environment we are, we are currently in. And it means that we've got to now start reviewing how we um, liaise and interact with other parties that we want to bring to the region. And we think, sorry, yes. Yeah. Look, I absolutely agree. I mean, this is obviously coming at a critical time in the region. Uh, The Pacific Islands Forum has been uh, understandably focused uh, for the past year following the Micronesian Five uh, members uh, announcing that they would split from the Pacific Islands mm. Forum and then putting, yes, they, uh, they have put a pause on that withdrawal, but the forum has been preoccupied with trying to find solutions uh, to that that will satisfy all parties. So this this uh, crisis happen, has happened at a time where, where regionalism itself has been uh, really, really uh, stressed uh, and under duress uh, over the past year. Um, it's also, you know, the, the region is also having to respond, as Henry has said, to the, 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 the geopolitical contestation in the region, uh, to an increasingly crowded space in which there are uh, new actors and a great deal more activity, as well as uh, the Pacific also seeking to uh, both uh implement and drive its own security agenda as we see through the the boy declaration of 2018 and then of course we have the 2050 pacific strategy to be launched this year so we have this jostling of security narratives of ideas about security and what how to achieve that and this this burgeoning sort of strategic community in the region uh and 
this issue is 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 an issue which the forum um, that Pacific leaders do need to respond to collectively, uh, and and this is why you know, the foghorn diplomacy that we've that we've witnessed over the past past few weeks hasn't been successful. But Pacific statecraft could be successful uh, going forward, and 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 that's where a great deal, a lot more work needs to be done in that space to support. Uh, Pacific-led uh, responses to this, and I'm, but I'm assuming from that you mean uh, not Pacific diplomacy with with no role for a country like Australia or or, or indeed no. the United States. Uh, that, that's an interesting, another interesting question, maybe to get to, but Pacific diplomacy that is supported by them is that absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Australia and New Zealand are part of this conversation. They're forum members. They're part of the family, uh, and, and this is where we could effectively put our money where our mouth is when it comes to collective security. But that would also mean some honest conversations about other security arrangements in the region too, such as AUKUS, for instance. So it sounds to me that the um, you know the argument we heard a few years back, which was a very understandable argument uh, from friends and family in the Pacific, that, that you know geopolitics was not welcome or geopolitical competition was not welcome in the Pacific. It sounds like the landscape has moved, whether we like it or not, Geopolitics is at play. Is that a reasonable argument, um, Anna? Absolutely. The the 2018 Boy Declaration, uh, the Pacific Islands Regional Security Declaration, specifically identifies uh, this tension between geopolitics and strategic competition in the region and Pacific identified priorities, climate change obviously being paramount, human security, transnational crime, the cyber, and so forth. So Pacific, the Pacific Islands members have, have uh, Clearly stated their views on on strategic competition. The concerns always has been of not wanting to choose between uh, China and the rest, uh, of also hedging mm-hmm. between China and Australia, uh, and also um, uh, wanting to seek opportunities where they can be found, which is completely understandable. And that's where that nexus between security and development is so acutely uh, critical to to unpack in the Pacific. But I think it's also really important to note too: Pacific leaders have been leveraging strategic competition for well over 100 years uh, and are very adept and skillful at doing so and are also quite accustomed to long periods where there is a lack of interest as well. Mm. And this is why going forward, the importance of consistent, coordinated engagement in the region, which recognizes that relationships are the currency, but they take time, is so fundamental. And that goes perhaps to the I think the different meanings I've been I've been placing on Henry's use of the term pressure. To, you know, there mm. there is pressure and there is pressure. And if, mm. if like if there's a um, a sustained, consistent engagement, which may involve some degree of very carefully calibrated pressure, to my mind, that's that's a more effective and understandable response. Mm. A, a, a sudden burst of activity uh, that is disruptive, uh, yes. even if it's from a, you know, in my view, in Australia's case, from a pretty defensive motivation, mm. uh, may not achieve the desired result. That's kind of how I'm, mm. how Absolutely. I'm reading, how I'm reading it. Um, Anna, can I now go to kind of the? Um, it's not just the elephant in the room where it's been all over the news headlines. The big question as to whether this may actually lead to a Chinese military base in the Solomon Islands, and if it's not really about a base, what is it about? Um, it'd be interesting for you to, um, if you don't mind, to, to just give us a sense of uh, what, what, what are the, um, 
the plausible futures or the obstacles to there being some kind of permanent Chinese military presence. Um, just because the document has been signed doesn't mean we'll necessarily see Chinese ships in the water and boots on the ground. What's what's your view? I don't necessarily think we, we we will. I do see the agreement. So the agreement contains, as you know, uh, a wide-ranging uh, scope of activities uh, from the provision of security personnel uh, to secure and protect Chinese nationals and assets through to this phrase around um, the capacity to provide logistical mm. uh, replenishment for ship visits uh, to Solomon Islands. Now, it's not that easy. And China, this is the same language that China has used in other um, agreements that it's signed. Cambodia is a good example of, the, of this. It's not a, as simple. And this is where the, the tension between uh, geopolitics and local dynamics really comes into play. And this is, might, might be something that actually Prime Minister Sokovara is relying on, mm. these checks and balances in his country, for for instance, the complexity of customary landlord issues, which which would make it very difficult to secure actual land for it. I would suggest that what we could potentially uh, see is, for instance, uh, last year China announced uh, that it was establishing a humanitarian and disaster relief hub in Guangdong. Uh, it's and then, when, then we saw the way in which China sought to respond to the eruption and tsunami in, in Tonga. Um, and what we could potentially see is a effort to pre-position uh, HADAR supplies uh, in Solomon's. Um, but humanitarian then, assistance. Humanitarian assistance relief, yeah. and disaster yeah. relief supplies, sorry. Yeah. Uh, and, but that in itself, you know, Raises a lot of questions. Uh, there will need to be security to prevent, you know, prevent um, uh, local opposition uh, and so forth to a Chinese presence. And and it really, there there is such a strong discontent uh, about uh, towards this agreement towards China amongst the local population that you could end up fighting a whole number of fires uh, if this proceeded. I do see this as something of a placeholder, though, mm. and I do think it's something that we do need to be concerned about uh, because it has you know, both internal and regional implications. Yeah, look, I guess from my own from my own um, perspective on this, I do I do think we need to take a long view uh, mm. because I, I tend to think back to debates about China's role in the region and the world. 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yes. And, you know, there was certainly plenty of voices 20 years ago who would say that, you know, it was outlandish to imagine that China would mm. have a, uh, mm. a naval presence in the Indian Ocean, a base in Djibouti, mm. uh, and so forth. Uh, of course, 10 years ago, there were plenty of promises that the South China Sea would not mm. be militarized, and it was. Mm. Um, China's a, a big and powerful country. And I guess I would even argue there's a kind of almost a neo-colonial tone to some of uh, its ambitions in the region. You know, colonialism doesn't always set out, if you like, to to become what it does become. Mm. Um, it, it, it evolves as security forces move in to protect economic interests. So I guess I I do worry from an Australian perspective um, that this is that that foot in the door, uh, mm. and that if. Um, despite all of the obstacles that I think you rightly point to, and perhaps the calculation, the political calculations internally mm. in the Solomon Islands, if there's something ultimately that the Chinese regime wants, it will probably get it. Um, 
Well, how how reasonable do you think is that argument? I'm happy to be, happy to be challenged. <laughs> no, absolutely, and and that's why I suggest that 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 elements of the agreement are placeholders. Yeah. Uh, because we do need to think about this in the in the long term. We also need to think about this in the context of of China's other interests in the region. Kiribati is an example of where similar concerns have been have been raised and will continue to be raised. Uh, and and I think that there is uh, every you know l- l- um, there's a possibility for for a for China to seek to to maintain some type of persistent presence mm-hmm. without necessarily. A actual base, mm. but a type of persistent presence through ship visits, through increasing the number of fishing vessels which come through, and we know that the that uh, Chinese the Chinese fishing fleet has plays a a number of roles in the region, uh, not just related to fisheries. Uh, and so we could see them seeking to to slowly build up a persistent presence in the region. And I suspect that that's where we're heading. But uh, and and that will. Over the next uh, few years, without putting a timeline, yeah, frame on and it. through sheer scale, this could all have a very disruptive, disruptive Ab- impact. Absolutely. Can I ask about the the law and order thing? And I'll, I'll I'll go to you first, Anna, and then maybe back to you again, Henry, before we we wrap up. Because uh, one of the more interesting media reports I've seen on this lately is the um, the report quoting, I think, actually the Australian Director General of National Intelligence, um, Andrew Shearer, who incidentally. Um, I think paid a visit uh, to Solomon Islands mm-hmm. uh, a few mm-hmm. weeks ago. To mm-hmm. the Solomon Islands as one of the, uh, I guess, Australian efforts to um, to have an influence on 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 the outcome. But he's reported as making comments. I think it was at the Rosina Dialogue in New Delhi um, this week, where he talked about the uh, the risks from an Australian perspective of a um, Chinese role in on the ground security and policing mm. in the Solomon mm. Islands talked about the you know the heavy handed tactics that we've seen in in Hong Kong for example and and actually posed the really interesting question of this is going to make it harder for countries like Australia and in my view New Zealand and others as well to um, to do the work that we have done in the past to provide law and order on the ground in the Solomon Islands precisely because it's going to be very difficult to work alongside or even unacceptable um, to work alongside mm-hmm. forces that have this um, this, the, 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 this very different um, and, and frankly, um, you know, I'd say insensitive to local conditions uh, way of operating. Uh, that then raises in my mind the question of what would the impact of a, uh, a larger Chinese role in policing and security on the ground in, in the Solomon Islands, mean where could this go? And this is something that that obviously is is deeply concerning uh, because it has direct implications for um, for stability uh, in Solomon Islands. Now, uh, the the draft agreement, uh, the signed version, which we assume is very close to the draft agreement, uh, does uh, provide some. Uh, suggestion about the type of security personnel that would be deployed. So, uh, and arguably that would most likely be, for instance, the the People's Armed Police, which are actually under PLA uh, command uh, and have been very active in a number of of scenarios, both domestically, but also engaged in in, uh, training and peacekeeping too. And this has been the argument that that, uh, the Solomon Islands government has made is that they're seeking to fill these gaps to respond to, to social disruptions to social order, to public order, and also to strengthen their peacekeeping capabilities. Now, the scenario uh, of a uh, de- deployment of, of Chinese security personnel uh, to 
police and, and, and potentially military as well, to Solomon Islands to, to quell uh, the kind of riots that we saw last year and, and a simultaneous uh, deployment uh, of Australians, New Zealanders, Fijians, Papua New Guineans, uh, as we also saw last year, raises a whole lot of questions, not least about interoperability, but about multiple uh uh, command and control, uh, and the potential for miscommunication uh, would be incredibly high. Mm. And so, from a from a purely sort of operational tactical perspective, there are there are, you know, enormous concerns about how that could potentially play out uh, on the ground. And and certainly from an Australian and New Zealand perspective, it raises uh, there are significant concerns because both Australia and New Zealand still have hmm. uh, personnel in Solomon Islands under the security, the Solomon Islands Assistance Force Agreement up until the end of 2023, as well as longstanding programs, uh, both in terms of training with respect to, to riot response, uh, but also community policing, for instance, in the case of New Zealand. So how does this align? How does the Chinese... Hmm. Uh, role potentially align with existing programs. And this is where that conversation needs to be had uh, between those partners who are providing security assistance and the Solomon Islands government as to how this would actually operate mm. uh, if we were faced with a scenario with several different, uh, two, two, essentially two different intervention forces, one with a very specific uh, f- um, objective to secure Chinese Interests, personnel, assets, and infrastructure, uh, and and then a Australian, New Zealand, Fijian, Papua New Guinean intervention force, which was with a broader, a broader mandate, uh, and and that ra- that begs a, a you know a enormous number of concerns, raises an enormous number of concerns about how that would potentially operate on the ground. Yeah, I guess in extreme scenarios, I I, I kind of see, and maybe not unlikely scenarios, I see you know. There being resentment and resistance against the um, the way that Chinese security forces might um, mm. might act on the streets of Honiara or elsewhere in Solomon Islands, and that would actually compel China to provide more forces. So there'd be a mm. vicious Absolutely. a vicious circle there. And we certainly saw there was a, a leaked manifest uh, for weapons and other kit uh, a couple months ago uh, that China had had sought permission uh, to to uh, send to Solomon Islands to protect the Chinese embassy. And we saw uh, it included uh, sniper weapons and, and other such. Uh, I think there was a machine gun in there, wasn't there yes, as well? Yes, there was, for the protection of the of the embassy itself. Yeah. And that it is deeply disturbing. And it raises a number of questions. What if Australia, New Zealand, Fiji and Papua New Guinea found themselves in a situation where they where the uh, the groups on the local, um, the local population was turning against the Chinese Force, uh, and what do we do? Mm. You know, that's a it's an extraordinary situation to be in, and it's a situation which I know that Australia and New Zealand have discussed for many years uh, in the context of, of Solomon Islands. Yeah, it's becoming very real. Um, Henry, I'm going to give you the last word uh, as, as as we wrap up. Whether you want to reflect on. In any of those questions about the uh, the law and order uh, futures for, for for Solomon Islands or for other countries in the region, or if you'd like to go back to um, any any concluding thoughts on on what the Pacific uh, should be doing, I'll go back to what I said earlier about the amount of pressure that we are accepting on Solomon Islands, and it could it could open a Pandora's box where it could activate 
the security agreement that Solomon Islands and China have signed. So there might be a crisis. That crisis will then uh, allow for the agreement to you know, take effect. It could happen today, it can happen tomorrow. Uh, and, and we will see that agreement coming into play. And the question for us is, how do we then respond to that scenario? That's the big question for us. Law and order is always an issue in many island states. In this case, it's just going to allow that agreement to come into force because we have applied an amount of pressure that has allowed instability to uh, take place. And I, a main partner in this agreement will exercise that agreement by you know, coming in to protect its investments. How do we, how do we deal with that? That's the probably the next big question. We, you know, China will be here. It'll be here now. It'll be here in the future. So, how do we manage China in our midst? That's the central question for all of us. So, the the Australian election is due in a number of weeks, and whoever the next government in this country is uh, is going to have to deal <laughs> with um, with these challenges along with others. Um, Anna, is um, maybe a closing observation from you, do you have any particular point of advice to uh, the next Australian government? Well, I mean, that's a, a, that's a, that's a challenging question because I, I, I wonder – so it's moving – the next the next Australian government, whoever that may be, uh, I would suggest needs to focus on moving beyond the transactional uh, and 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 ensuring that those relationships are there in in the region, uh, and also but also focusing on on building democratic resilience uh, and across the across the region, both Solomon Islands and 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 elsewhere, because if the one one of the things that we have learned from from this is the importance of. As Henry said, China is going to be is in the region and is in the region to, to arguably to stay. So, how do we build up those voices across the region in media, in civil society, in academia, uh, in the church, and in, in traditional um, groupings to to be the voices that can test these issues when they occur uh, in their countries? And I think that's that really needs to be a, a, a very strong focus going forward. Is how do we build up these voices in their countries so that they are the ones who are calling out their governments, calling their governments to account uh, when, when situations like this arise. Uh, democratic antibodies, I guess, is the way I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> summarising that. Look, um, this has been a really, I think, fruitful uh, and somewhat, somewhat confronting discussion as well, but I think a really important conversation to have. Uh, so I, I want to thank you both, uh, Dr. Anna Poles from Massey University and Dr. Henry uh, Ivarature here at the um, Australian National University. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Rory. Hello, Rory. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.